All right, what's up, Salt City? My name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. And uh, I've been married for seven years now, which is crazy. Oh, yeah, okay. Kyle is particularly excited. Thank you for that, Kyle. Yeah, and Jessamy, where are you even at? I, I don't even, I haven't even seen it. There she is. That's, that's, that's my bride, Jessamy. She loves it when I point her out. Not really, but I like to point her out. You're cool, Jess. Um, yeah, and... And we, we hung out with some of our friends from our, our connection group, PJ and Ken's, on Friday night, and they're about to get married, and they were kind of asking us about, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about you. She's kind of like, oh, he's talking about me. Yep. Hey. Um, and they were asking us just like, yeah, what was your guys' story? What was that day like for you or whatever? And it was a great day, but I was thinking about there was a lot of moments that people were there that they shouldn't have been there for. Like I'm, like I'm getting dressed in the morning and there was a photographer taking pictures. Like that is weird. They, like we, we go to our first look and it's like this awesome moment. She's crying, I'm crying, right? And we've got cameras in our face. And, and like the, the most awkward moment of like someone should not have been there for this was we, so we, we go through this, and don't worry, this isn't getting too weird, okay? But I, just to put you at ease. But so we go through our ceremony, and we walk through the tunnel or whatever, and we had uh, like this time in between the ceremony and the reception where we were going to take some photos. And so we, we hop in my car, and we're kind of having this moment where I've got my forehead on her forehead, and, and we're, we're still doing that whole like, I love you more, no, I love you more thing, right? We're being all like cutesy, and we're, we're like talking about the ceremony and our favorite part of, of the ceremony. So this is happening for like five, six minutes, and then I like look up in the rearview mirror because we're in the back seat, and I see my buddy Andrew who is driving the car, and he is just feeling incredibly uncomfortable, <laughs> and I love that, and so I made it more uncomfortable for him, but... It's just like, but it was just like, yeah, like there's all of these moments. They're like these, these intimate moments that you have, these significant moments in your life where you're expressing love to the, this person that's so important to you. And then there's just randomly a bunch of other people there. And I feel a little bit like that for our story this morning. So we're going to Mark 14. And a lot of you know this story. It's a story of this woman that comes up and she breaks this jar of perfume and she's dumping it on Jesus's head and wiping it on his feet. And it's this elaborate sort of intimate moment with Jesus. And, and I feel like we're kind of Andrew in the car. We're, we're like, I don't know if we should be here for this. Like, I feel a little bit uncomfortable reading this because it's this very intimate moment that this woman is having with Jesus. And, and I, I wanted us to feel that before we get into the story. Be, because I think that our worship of Jesus can be a little bit tame. And we miss the, the extravagance, the almost embarrassing adoration that comes with your first love for Jesus. Right? And so I, I want you to, to see that in this, in this woman. So Mark 14, 1 through 9. Oh, and, and sorry, before I get into that, let me tell you where we're going. It's, we're going real simple today. So we're going to talk about the heart of this woman we're going to talk about the heart of Judas, and we're going to talk about the heart of God, all right? So Mark 14, 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, I love this, he comes to her defense. He's protecting her. He's fighting for her. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, so I want you to picture this scene, right? So Jesus is, is in a home with some of his closest friends. And this, this woman walks up to Jesus with almost for sure the single most valuable thing that her or anyone in her family possesses, right? And so she's carrying out this elaborate marble vase and she's walking out with it. And, and I, I think she comes out with it and I, I just wonder what the disciples are thinking. I, I think they're probably thinking that this woman is doing like show and tell for Jesus, that she's like showing off her family wealth and look at this expensive perfume that I have and she's carrying it. And have you ever been a, in a restaurant where a waitress or a waiter is like carrying way too many glasses on one tray and you're just stressed and you're watching it, right? Okay, imagine if that was like a $50,000 bottle of wine, okay? How stressed would you be? That's what's happening here. That's what this stuff is worth. It's worth a year's wages. So we've, we've got $50,000 perfume that this woman is carrying in. And she walks up to Jesus, and, and this perfume was, was imported from India, right? That's why it's so expensive, and it's in this marble um, vase that was probably imported from Egypt. And she walks up to Jesus with it, and then she breaks the top of it off. And I don't, like, did the disciples scream? Like, there for sure were gasps. Like, Peter probably is in the back booing, like, because he's Peter. (laughs) So she breaks this thing, and not only does she put a little bit of it on Jesus, right? When, When you spray perfume on yourself, hopefully you're not dumping an entire bottle on yourself. But that's what this woman does. She breaks this thing, and she dumps it on his head, and from alternative accounts, we know that she gets down on her hands and her feet like a slave, and she's rubbing it on to Jesus' feet. What an act of worship. What an act of worship that is. And, and look, it seems insane when you think about it. Like it seems absolutely over the top. Who spends 50000 Like if somebody walks into this room with a $50,000 bottle of perfume and then breaks it and is like, I just wanted you guys to smell good today, are you going to think that that was a good idea? Like we're, we're probably with the disciples on that. Where we're going, what are you doing, woman? They, they berated her. They're, Why are you wasting this? We would probably be with them on that. What drives a person to do something like that? Well, to answer the question, we've got to figure out who the woman was and what Jesus had done for her. So we don't get her name in this account, but there's parallel accounts of this story, particularly in the Gospel of John, where we find out who this woman was. This was a woman named Mary, as in Mary and Martha, if you remember that story of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's kind of running around trying to serve him. But do you know who their brother was? Their brother, their brother was Lazarus. Do you remember his story from earlier in the Gospel of Mark? Lazarus was dead. And Jesus showed up to a funeral, and Mary and Martha were weeping for their dead brother 
along with other people from the town, and Jesus shows up, and he walks into Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, get up. And he gets up out of the tomb. So the dude that Jesus rose from the dead is sitting at the table while this is happening. We also know that it's in Simon the leper's house. And, and I'm not totally confident who this is. It might actually be Mary and Martha's dad. But what I, what I do think we know for sure is that he is no longer a leper. Because here's the deal. You don't go to a leper's house to eat dinner. It's, it's contagious. And, and they were social outcasts, yet they're eating dinner at his house. Why? Because this guy had met Jesus. And he had been healed. So here we have this scene with the who's who of people whose lives Jesus has transformed, of people that Jesus has healed. And all of a sudden, this seemingly crazy act of worship starts to make sense. Why? Because extravagant worship is the only appropriate response to extravagant love. Extravagant worship is the only appropriate response to extravagant love. And Jesus had poured out extravagant love on this family. And they responded the way that you should. So I want to look into this. I want to look at worship. I want to notice two things. Worship is extravagant, not calculated. And worship is worth it. So first, it's extravagant, not calculated. So notice the only person in the room not analyzing what, had it, what it had cost her to display this, this love towards Jesus was Mary. She's the only person not calculating the cost of it. The, the Judas and the disciples were, were calculating. They were running a cost-benefit analysis on, on whether this act of worship was worth it, and that had never even crossed Mary's mind. Genuine worship isn't calculated. It's the overflow of a heart that's been overwhelmed by Jesus. Okay, so what about you? Is your worship calculated or is it extravagant? When you walk through life with Jesus, are you analyzing everything that you have to lose to follow him and trying to do the bare minimum? Or are you so overwhelmed by him that you don't even care what it'll cost you because it gains you so much to know him? When's the last time that you did something spontaneous, something almost illogical just because you love Jesus and he's worth it to you? For some of you that have been following Jesus for a while, do you remember when you, when you first fell in love with him, when you had like that first love and you did stuff that you look back on now and it was kind of stupid and you wouldn't do it again, but there's something to be learned in that, right? Like, like, a lot of us in the community have something to learn from the college students in this room who are in that first love stage in life and they don't care what it costs them to follow Jesus. They don't care if it feels logical to everyone else. They just want to love him and enjoy him. And we've actually got some people in our church that are demonstrating extravagant acts of, of worship. So a couple weeks ago, uh, Ra Wassenaar came up on the stage and did a little financial update. And it wasn't super heavy-handed. Like, he just real simply said, hey, we're a little short on the budget, just so you know. And then there was a couple that next week that just gave $10,000 to the church. They just went, oh, there's a need. Okay, we'll meet it. Boom, $10,000. That's extravagant worship. Who does that? Like, if you told somebody that doesn't know Jesus that that's what you just did with your ten grand, they are going to think you're insane. But that's what happens when you meet Jesus. Jenna Weichel isn't here because they have four kids and they're adopting three more from Africa. Like, Nate, you guys have lost your mind a little bit, but it's awesome. 
And, and, and Jenna just went like mama mode and she's like, I'm gonna go get my kids. And they haven't signed that paper yet, but she just showed up in Africa and she's gonna stay there until they give her her kids. Why? Because she's experienced the adoption of Jesus Christ. She's been brought into the family of God through the sacrifice that he paid for her. And she wants to demonstrate that love to the world. And here's why people can have acts of worship like that. Because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. That's our second thing I want us to notice about worship. So I think sometimes as Christians, we can have this sort of joyless, discouraged, rigid experience with Christianity. So when I first became a Christian, I was just an intense human being, and I thought what it meant to be a Christian was to be intense and get stuff done and have no fun and just kind of, you know, like, and I feel like we're kind of like that sometimes. And, and, and here's why. Because I think we secretly, so, so we know what the right way to live is, but we secretly think that sinning is actually fun. That, that we're sort of missing out as believers on the good life and we're, we're desperately trying to restrain ourselves because we know it's the right thing to do, but we actually think that God's holding out on us. We actually look at people who are caught in sin and go, that would kind of be fun to live however I wanted. We know what we're supposed to do and so we force ourselves to do it even though that we don't want to and we put off this perception that living as a Christian is just kind of drudgery. And sometimes it's hard, but it's good. Because following Jesus isn't a a have to, it's a get to. So again, I I love college students. So at the last church that I was was at, there was this um, like green space and a little pond behind the church. And there was this, this night at Salt Company that we taught on sexual purity. And so I was out afterwards hanging out with some people in the foyer and this kid that I knew walked in from outside and it was kind of cold outside and was like, man, what were you doing? And then he said this sentence, I threw my phone in the lake. <laughs> and I went, you did what? He's like, yeah, I was looking at stuff on my phone that I didn't want to be and so I threw it in the lake. And one of my first thoughts was like, bro, there's like 10 other ways that we could have helped you with this. Like there was better solutions than that. But I didn't say that. I just gave him a hug. And he was like beaming. He was like, yeah, this was awesome. I threw my phone in the lake. He's like, he's not even thinking about it. Okay, what happened? Jesus was worth it to him. He wasn't analyzing the cost of his phone. He maybe should have been a little bit. But he wasn't analyzing the cost of his phone. He, he knew that following Jesus was a better life than living in sin. And he was willing to do whatever it took to be a part of that good life. I love that. And this woman sets the pace for us and what that looks like. And guess what? We're still telling her story. Did you catch that? There's a prophecy in this text where Jesus said, you guys are making fun of this woman, but people are gonna be talking about her everywhere that the gospel is preached throughout the world. It's a couple thousand years later, we're still talking about this woman. Which, by the way, if you're, if you're still struggling with Christianity, if you're a little bit of a skeptic towards it, you got to deal with stuff like that in Scripture, right? But this was predicted 2,000 years ago. We're fulfilling it right now. So this woman sets the pace for us, and we see her heart exposed in the way that she responds to Jesus. So that's the heart of the woman. Next, the heart of Judas. 
Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So what a contrast between that woman and Judas we have, right? And Judas and Mary have seen Jesus perform almost all the same miracles. They've heard the same teachings. So what was the difference? It was in who and what they loved. What they were devoted to. And and look, you don't make a decision like this to betray Jesus on the spot. This was a process, right? It had been building in his heart over time and something about what happened with this woman was the final straw, whether it was that she was getting the tension that he wanted, whether it was he was just sick of of this quote-unquote wasted money because he actually wanted to steal it. I don't know what it was, but there was something that was the final straw, but this had been a process in his heart and in his life for a long time. The hate that had started small grew in his heart. And one of Jesus' best friends, one he had shared meals with, that he had laughed with, that he had cried with, is walking the two-mile stretch from Bethany to Jerusalem to murder one of his supposed best friends. What was that walk through the dark like for Judas? Maybe he was so calloused by sin that he didn't really care, but you gotta think that there was a war going on with him. Maybe he started to walk and then would second guess it and and turn back and then he would go back again, right? Was there this battle between greed and guilt going on in his heart where he was thinking about that money that he was gonna get for betraying Jesus, but he knew that it was wrong and did he have that internal battle in him? Was there self-righteousness? Was he going, I should receive the attention that that woman's receiving. I'm the one that's been with Jesus through this whole time. I'm the one that sacrificed for him. I deserve this. Was, was he justifying his sin? Was he saying Jesus isn't actually who he says he was and so he deserves this. He deserves to be betrayed. He shouldn't be handling money the way that he is and so you know this is actually a, a good thing that I'm doing. Was he minimizing his sin? Do you realize that we take the walk from Bethany to Jerusalem every day? Because sin isn't just doing something wrong, it's betrayal. It's not just breaking the rules, it's breaking the heart of God. Because the root of all sin is unbelief, it's rejection of Jesus as the king. And so when you wake up and it's the decision time about how you're gonna live, whether you're gonna sit on the couch or whether you're gonna serve your wife, whether you're gonna look at that thing on the computer or not, whether you're gonna hoard money or whether you're gonna give it away, when you're in that tension and when you're trying to justify your behavior to yourself, you're on that walk that Judas was on. Will you reject him as your king or not? Why would Jesus, or why would Judas do this to Jesus? I think there's a lot of reasons, but there's a couple that I want to point out. One, sin makes promises that it can't keep. Two, it takes you further than you ever wanted to go. So first, sin makes promises that it can't keep. So we thought the woman's act of worship was illogical, 
right? How about Judas's act of worship to sin? He's betraying a friend. He's searing his conscience forever. He's murdering the son of God. He's betraying everything and everyone that he's known for at least the last three years for a few chunks of shiny metal. Why? Because sin had made promises to him that it couldn't keep. Sin had welled up in his heart and it said, hey, if you're just willing to do this one thing, then you'll be happy. Then you'll have the money that you've looked for. Then you'll have the power and the prestige that you've looked for. Sin will always make you promises in your life that if you'll just indulge it, it'll give you a better life. What is sin promising you? What better life is it promising you right now? Maybe it makes the same promise that that it made to Judas, that you need money to be happy. And maybe for you that's in the traditional sense that you just spend a bunch of money on yourself But maybe for a lot of us, it actually looks a little bit different where where you want to control your finances because you want to make sure that you're secure. And so you kind of hoard it and never spend it and you're stressed about it. And guess what? It's still defining you. Sin is still promising you that if you can be in control of your own life, your own finances, then you can make sure that everything's okay. Then you can have the life that you've always dreamed that you can have. Maybe for you, sin is promising that selfishness will make you happy. That you know that we're supposed to live selfless lives. But, but if I could just kind of indulge that one thing, I've, I've earned that. I've earned that time off. I've earned that little bit of selfishness. I don't have to serve all the time, do I? If I can just indulge that selfishness, then I'll be okay. It's making you promises about the better life. But listen, sin is gimmicky. Have you ever experienced that where you indulge it and you go, seriously, this was it? This seems so much more fun five minutes ago. Sin is the shake weight of happiness. <laughs> so you guys know the shake weight? You ever seen, okay, so it's one of those like as like seen on TV things that you'll see like in stores every once in a while. And it's literally just this weight that you just hold and it shakes. And then it promises you that you're gonna get ripped which is essentially saying that you can just stand there, do nothing, you're gonna get jacked. And people buy this. Okay, so I haven't fallen for that one, but I have fallen for the copper pan. Have you guys seen the copper pan commercial? It's this pan that's copper and they burn cheese on it and you don't ever have to clean it. It just falls off, it's amazing. And there's all these things with people like scratching this pan and nothing happens to it. And then the climax of the commercial is they run over it with a car. Because if there's anything you need in a pan, it's to be able to run over it with a car. And that's where they got me, and so I really wanted one, and my friends knew this because I talked about the copper pan all the time, so they bought it for me for Christmas, and then I ran home and I burnt cheese on it. You know what happened? The cheese stuck to the pan. <laughs> it, was, it was not the pan that I thought it was going to be, and my life is not better because I have that pan. <laughs> Translation, sin is dumb. <laughs> It's making you these dumb, gimmicky promises that you know in your head aren't going to work, but your heart wants it. Like, let me just try it once. Maybe it'll satisfy me. And then you get on the other side of it, and it didn't work. Sin isn't fun. It doesn't make your life better. It's stupid. It makes you dumb. It's a terrible life. It's full of empty promises. Love of money promises happiness. It actually brings greed. Anxiety and slavery. 
Lust promises you pleasure and it brings gross regret, ruined families, broken marriages. Power and influence and a good reputation promises you respect and worth. It actually brings you insecurity, failure, and depression. Okay, so sin makes promises it can't keep and sin will always take you further than you want to go. I guarantee you that after Judas took that money, he asked himself, how in the world did I get here? Here's the answer. Every sin is a gateway drug to more sin. Judas began somewhere simple, like a little bit of frustration, and it ended in betrayal. The long glance at a woman leads to pornography, which leads to adultery. The strictness with your kids leads to bitterness and anger, which leads to you demanding and demeaning them, which leads to a broken relationship with them. The need for comfort leads to the need for control, which leads to a lack of faith, which can lead to anything. It can lead to the eating disorder, to the hoarding of wealth, to the manipulating of relationships. What sin is going unchecked and unconfessed in your life? Seriously, think about that sin. What sin is going unchecked and unconfessed in your life? Now, I want you to take that down the road that it's taking you. Is it leading you to a place that you want to be in your life? The longer you sit in sin, the more destructive it will become. It will, it will grow in you. Okay, so I was, I was reading the news the other day, and my eye got caught by this weird picture, and then I read the title, and it said this, woman has 132-pound tumor removed. 132-pound tumor. Okay, I, I was tempted to put a picture of it because it's crazy, but I can get away with that stuff. It's all company probably can't hear. We'll be a little bit more refined. Uh, but it looked like one of those exercise balls was in her stomach, and, and okay, now let me, just so I can continue with my illustration before you feel bad for her. They operated on it, she's totally fine, okay? Like, has a good life, everything's fine, okay, we're good. So I was thinking about, th- this is nuts. So I got in a little bit of a rabbit trail and I Googled things that weigh 132 pounds. And a baby giraffe, there was a baby giraffe in her stomach. There was 2,948 pieces of sushi, in her stomach, there's actually a website that's, I think it's called Things and Weight, and you just type in a weight, and then it gives you the things, and it's amazing. <laughs> so, so this thing was nuts, right? But my question is, how do you get there? So, okay, so this tumor grew fast. They, they said it was growing like 10 pounds a week, which is crazy. But by my math, there was still 13 weeks where, what, what happened? Like, what, what were the doctors doing or what was she doing? Was it like, I'm just adding a little bit of belly weight? Like, 10 pounds a week. What was going on? Here's the deal. Sin is a tumor that's growing in you. And, and, and some of you are treating it like a little cold. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll just wait for it to pass. no. Sin, when you let it sit, grows, and it eventually will kill you. 
Sin is suicidal. That's what happened to Judas, is he let sin sit in his heart, and it grew to full-out betrayal. And eventually, he ends up taking that money that he got that he was so looking forward to, throwing it back in the temple, and, and committing suicide. Sin is suicidal. It'll kill you if you don't deal with it. But Jesus, the great physician, is standing there ready to operate. And you've got, no other op- you've got no other options. You need an operation. And yes, his operation will hurt and it'll be invasive, but it'll save your life. Listen to the heart of God. So I want you to look back at the first paragraph. I want you to notice a little detail. So the first paragraph says this. It was now two days before the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from people. So these religious leaders are scheming for how they're going to kill Jesus. And they're, they're forming their strategy. And what do they say? They say, not during the feast. Okay, so what feast is this that they're not going to kill him during? It's the Passover feast. Right? And so... The, the Passover was where pilgrims from all over the place came flooding in, into, into Jerusalem. Imagine like the 4th of July on steroids, okay? So like everybody in the States goes to Washington, D.C. to have a giant celebration, okay? That, that's like the Passover. It's this nationalistic celebration, and it, and it was once a year, and it was a big deal. And so the, pre, the priests are saying, we can't kill Jesus during the Passover because we might start a riot. Let me, let me just tell you a little bit more about the Passover. Some of you know this, right? But what was the Passover celebrating? It was celebrating the great saving event in Israelite history. The way that we look back to the cross, the Israelites looked back to the Passover. You can find it in the book of Exodus, right? Where Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and there's these, ten, there's these plagues that are, that are coming against the Egyptians. And then the final plague is the death of the firstborn son. And God warns the Israelites about it ahead of time. And he tells them, look, this is what you need to do. If you slaughter a lamb, if you put it over the door frames of your house, then I, my wrath will pass over you. And so in the morning when the Egyptians were wailing over their lost family members, the Israelites celebrated because God had taken his wrath from them. He had passed over them, and then they walked out of slavery into the presence of God. That's what the Passover is celebrating, right? But notice what they said is, we're not gonna kill him during the Passover, but when did they kill him? During the Passover. Why? Well, practically, what changed was they now had an inside informant in Judas. That they could get this time where Jesus would be alone so that they could arrest him without causing a riot. But why does Mark include this random detail about how they decided not to do it on the Passover? Why does he even tell us that it was the Passover at all? Because he wants us to learn something about the heart of God. Judas had every opportunity to betray Jesus. Why does he choose this one? Because ultimately Judas took the two-mile walk through the dark before the Passover because God wanted him to. Why? 
because the true Passover lamb had come. Just like the Israelites needed a blood covering in order for God to pass over them, God's people, we needed a blood covering. Jesus was the lamb that was slaughtered to protect and cover us from the wrath of God. And there's a new way out of slavery. It's not slavery to the Egyptians, but slavery to ourselves and to our sin. Slavery in our selfishness, our lust, our pride, our greed, our hate. And there's a way out of that slavery into the presence of God. It's the lamb that was crucified on the Passover so that you wouldn't have to be. And here's what's so crazy. This this blows my mind about this whole story. God used a conniving, backstabbing, murderous thief to save the world. The rebellion of Judas and the religious leaders backfired because their act of hate set the stage for the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. God allowed his son to die on the Passover to unleash his love into a world that hated him. And here's the deal. If you're in Christ, your rebellion backfired too. He uses your weakness, your betrayal, your, your, and I should say our stupidity and sin as a means by which he can express his unconditional love to you. And listen, we have more to be thankful for than Mary did. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, which was amazing, but Lazarus eventually died. If you're in Christ, Jesus has raised you from the dead eternally, where you will never have to die again, but death is simply an entry into eternity with Jesus, being with your Savior. He's robbed sin of its control of you. He's robbed death of its sting for you so that you can be with him and that you never have to be separated from him. You can't sin enough to be separated from this king because he chased you down, because he came as your Passover. That's extravagant love. What type of extravagant worship does that king deserve from us? Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for that truth that you are the true Passover lamb and that you made a way back that we don't have to be in slavery to our sin anymore but that we can know you that you can that you can bring us out of sin the way that you brought Israel out of Egypt and we can experience new new life with you and and Jesus there I think there's there's some hard stuff in here about what Judas did to you but there's some beautiful stuff about how you just loved a people that hated you but that's not even all the good news. It's that you can actually teach us to love you. <laughs> that, that because of your grace to us, that we don't, we don't have to hate you anymore. We can love you. And, and that's such a good life. It's so much better than sin. And so would you help us as a church to be people who 
extravagantly and rightly worship you. Who know that that following you is better than following sin. Would you help us to, to turn away from sin this week and turn towards love of you? Would you help us to make crazy decisions because you're a crazy God that's worth it? Would we be people that people from the outside look in at us and go, you guys are nuts, you're crazy. But would they see you in that? Would, you, would they see people who have been redeemed in that? Yeah, we love you, Lord. Amen.